20 years ago, I was in the Red Square when that flag was taken down. Some of the families there, they were so excited. Those kids, they would not remember who Khrushchev, Stalin, Lenin. That's who we want to reach out. Those who take faith seriously. Welcome to First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen to today's conversation with Sergei Rakuba, the president of Russian Ministries. Like many in his generation, Sergei grew up under communism, and we'll talk about the then and now in just a moment. Thanks for making the choice to listen to First Person. This is simply a one-on-one interview with people who give God the credit for what he's done in their lives. It's exciting each week to learn another story of God's faithfulness and leading. I hope you'll take the time to visit the website, which goes hand-in-hand with First Person. Not only will you be able to check the calendar for upcoming guests, but you'll also be able to listen to any past program when you click on the archive button. There are dozens of insightful interviews online at firstpersoninterview.com. Plus, we're found on Facebook at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Well, it is hard to believe, but it's been 20 years since Mikhail Gorbachev announced a policy of glasnost, which brought an end to the Soviet Union. My friend Sergei Rakuba has spent the past 20 years helping the church in the countries of the former Soviet Union grow stronger. And when we sat down in the studio recently to talk about it, I began by asking him to recall the first moment when he realized things were going to be different. There, all of a the sudden, uh, we started seeing things we were not allowed to see. You know, in Moscow, I was at the time, I remember when Gorbachev announced glasnost in Perestroika. All of a sudden, I started seeing on TV that they started criticizing the way the Communist Party was acting. It was very unusual. That had never happened before. It never happened before. Communist Party, communism, socialism, ideology. It was all so much controlled and so much, people were so much brainwashed. So it was like um, not a single chance, you know, to say, you know, there was something wrong done by on behalf of Communist Party. Well, what was the effect of that? I mean, were people puzzled? Did they suddenly feel like they were powerful? What, what was the effect? You know, all of a sudden, with wow, you know, this is interesting. You can criticize your government. You can criticize your uh, superiors at work. And all of a sudden, you know, Gorbachev, I remember, announced that so the leaders don't have to be appointed. They can be chosen and elected by people. It was something something so new, so amazing. We didn't know how to use this opportunity, actually. Was it chaotic? I mean, was there confusion or was there some semblance of order even? Uh, people couldn't believe that it was actually happening. Nobody could grasp, you know, the idea that actually glasnost in perestroika was happening in reality. Well, a whole generation didn't understand that at Not all, Not just right? one generation, two generations. You know, since 1917, you know, till uh, through 1985, several generations. People could not believe, you know, what was happening. And all of a sudden, we started seeing, you know, that those revolutions happened in Romania, uh, Czech Republic, you know, those Eastern European countries. We thought, whoa, things change, literally change, you know, in Germany. And then all of a sudden, we see that all those banners on the streets everywhere, if you've been to Moscow or any larger city, in the former Soviet Union, all the streets, they, they were uh, decorated with those red banners about Communist Party, about Lenin, you know, about his ideology, all those slogans everywhere. It was all propaganda, wasn't it? Yeah. Everywhere. And all of a sudden, we see it started getting replaced by commercial banners. 
And then I remember on a specific uh, moment, it was right before Christmas, uh, after the New Year, but before Russian Christmas, and Russians celebrate Christmas uh, two weeks later on January 7th, all of a sudden I see all these blue banners everywhere on the major streets of Moscow, Merry Christmas, Russians enjoy Perestroika. A few months later, I was at the Red Square soon after the uh, Easter uh, holiday, and I couldn't believe so that, that the huge, largest picture of Lenin, uh, Lenin uh, Engels, and Marx that we used to call it unholy or ungodly trinity, yeah. that was there on the largest building in the Red Square, you know, and it was displayed for the entire world. And that's where the Soviet army would roll those tanks, you know, and the heavy equipment. We all saw those May Day celebrations <laughs> sure. here with all the missiles and military equipment on parade. And I remember coming to the Red Square, it was late April, April days, and I was several of my colleagues, and I started choking up, crying, because I couldn't believe what happened. You know, that picture was replaced with a picture of Jesus. And it was in the form of icon, you know, Russia, uh, still orthodox, orthodox yeah, sure. picture, but still, you know, hands of Jesus, you know, was stretched out to the public, you know, the blood is dripping. And it, underneath it says, uh, uh, Jesus is risen, he is risen indeed. And then underneath somebody wrote on a piece of paper, you know, and nailed to that uh, banner, Russians enjoy perestroika. Oh. So, and everywhere you see people, you know, then in the Red Square, you know, we were able to distribute New Testaments uh, be- that became available to us. Before it wasn't possible. Uh, it was all underground. We did not have a chance to have, I'm talking about my childhood, to have several Bibles in my house. We were allowed to have just one officially printed. It was impossible to find the one. So, And all of a sudden, we distribute hundreds of thousands of Christian literature, you know, New Testaments. And uh, we got a chance to preach in the streets, you know. So all of a sudden, you know, this change started kind of taking over. And uh, so we started breathing that freedom. And, uh, you know, that's that's how it happened. I don't think we can imagine what that feeling is like, the feeling that you experienced in Moscow. Now, you're you're from Ukraine. You grew up in Ukraine. What were you doing in Moscow when all this happened? I was born and raised in the Ukrainian part of the former Soviet Union. Yeah, very, very much under the control of the Communist Party. Oh, yes. Yeah. It was all Soviet Union, you know, the same government. You know, it was uh, uh, one of the provinces, one of the socialistic republics, they call it, of Ukraine. But it was still under control of Moscow, under control of the uh, Communist Party. And that's where I was born into a Christian family. I'm the youngest in the family of four. And uh, it was a little different. So that's where I was uh, raised in the Christian family. My parents came to know Christ during World War II, uh, and that's a different story. And that's uh, who who led me to Christ. Mm-hmm. But how did you end up in Moscow then? Uh, I had to serve my army service two years, and part of that compulsory was, service. Yes, it was uh, obligatory. You know, I had a choice. Either two years in the Soviet army or four years in prison, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty easy choice. <laughs> and so part of the service was in Moscow and around Moscow. And uh, I developed a relationship uh, even before I was drafted to the Soviet army with the uh, family. Uh, and uh, Tanya, my wife Tanya, is, uh, okay. was one of the daughters. You okay. know? So, <laughs> so a love story comes out of all this, too. I get it. <laughs> and, uh, so after the, I was released from my army service, you know, two years later, we uh, got married, and I moved to Moscow. She is from Moscow. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a logical thing for us at the time you know, to settle down and, mm-hmm. 
uh, Moscow, and that's when I moved there. Talk about that openness, because uh, I was in Moscow in the early 90s after Glasnost, and I saw the the eagerness of people to take any Christian literature or Bibles that we could hand to them, and I think that soon died down. But there was, there was a, a spiritual hunger, wasn't there? It was a huge spiritual hunger, uh, Wayne. And uh, I remember, you know, when we uh, got the chance, you know, to receive some uh, Christian literature from our colleagues, from our partnering organizations, from our supporters. Most of that, most of that came from United States, Canada, and some from uh, Western European countries. But it was never enough. You know, hundreds and hundreds, millions of copies uh, of uh, Christian literature was passed on the streets. You know, and uh, we distributed that. You it must was... have been like a sponge, t- <laughs> taking all that in and reading everything you could read. Uh, you see, people were. I mean, the, the biggest hunger was for the Bible. Everybody wanted to have a Bible. And it was not enough, you know, as many, you know, was, was shipped to Soviet Union or Russia, as many we printed on the same presses that communists before printed their ideology, their propaganda, it was not enough. Today is a little different. A new generation, 20 years past. Uh, Orthodox Church, of course, is trying to monopolize uh, the spiritual field, as we say, or religious uh, mm-hmm. field. And uh, so the Bible is available, but uh, materialism, you know, all that what comes with yeah. freedom and stuff, you know, of course, you know, uh, the gospel is competing, if I can say, you know, with all this uh, contemporary stuff. And that's what Russian ministers is doing today. So this is my vision. This is my passion. Uh, so I like to re-energize the evangelical community. And it's only possible to reach out through reaching out to the young people and to equipping them, reaching out to the same community with the gospel, you know, that is more relevant today than I should say ever before. And that's what that's what my passion is all about. I think a lot of people, when we think of the former Soviet Union, we think of the old guard, if I can say that. You know, the the uh, the people who were around, who were persecuted, who withstood that persecution, who kept the faith. And yet, there's a whole generation of people that have been raised in these past 20 years that they've lived in this openness. And there's a, there's a certain excitement even in this new generation that that you're trying to capture and train, right? And that's uh, that's exactly what we're doing, Wayne. And we're trying to build this uh, uh, alliances, if I can say, this partnership, you know, uh, with uh, national evangelical churches, working with evangelical leaders uh, in the countries of the former Soviet Union, but still to utilize all the resources that are available, and provide training and to equip young people, those who, in a new way. And uh, they are very innovative. They are very resourceful. But, uh, you know, they are not really into tradition and cultural values anymore. Mm-hmm. You see this Facebook generation, uh, Wayne. <laughs> Facebook goes to <laughs> the former Soviet sure, Union. Sure, you know, if you it. go on my Facebook, you will see more Russian friends, you know, than I have. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I, I am on your Facebook, as a matter of fact, <laughs> and I can't read much of what's posted there. So, <laughs> But uh, uh, exciting, exciting uh, dialogues, you know, take place. And I'm so excited to see that young Young people are eager in a new way to take the gospel into their contemporary society. Just give you one story. Uh, 20 years ago, I was in the Red Square when that flag uh, that some people, uh, you know, would see as a symbol of the um, evil empire. Mm -hmm. The hammer and sickle. uh, The hammer and sickle. Mm -hmm. It was taken down. You know, it was replaced with a three-color contemporary Russian, actually uh, old Russian uh, flag. right. 
And uh, some of the families there were there. They were so excited, you know. Uh, they were screaming hooray, and so they were enjoying that moment. And they had children. They were holding children in their had, uh, hands, you know, those who are two, three years old. Those kids are walking in the same red square. They don't care about who Lenin, who is still there in that tomb there. They would not remember who Khrushchev, Stalin, Lenin. They care, care, care less about this. But, you know, they care about values. They care about, uh, you know, some legitimate things, you know, and that's who we want to, we want to reach out. Those who take faith seriously. We'll continue talking with Sergei Rakuba of Russian Ministries coming up on today's edition of First Person. Next week on First Person, an exciting story as 50 women plan on climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. I would have to say the people that think that we're crazy are those that don't have an understanding of what's going on. And those that do understand what's going on globally are fully endorsing it. It's really gained a lot of momentum, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of support. The women of Operation Mobilization climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. We'll meet some of them next time on First Person. Sergey, when we think of Russia, I think most Americans don't think in terms of this young generation. You see this generation as the one that God is preparing to reach Russia with the gospel, don't you? Russia is different today, Wayne. You know, Russia has more opportunities for ministry uh, than ever before, than any other country, if I can say. And it's a vast country. It's a with huge... With all kinds. I mean, you have Muslims in Russia. Uh, listen, uh, 128 different ethnic groups live just in Russia. Russia is the largest Muslim country in the world today. Just think about that. You know, with 120, uh, 148 million people, 22% are Muslim, and this is because of migration, but also because of uh, Islamic active uh, outreach as mm -hmm. well, you know, to the young generation. Mm -hmm. Northern Caucasus, you know, uh, since Soviet Union collapsed, you know, there was always, that area was turbulent. And, and simply because uh, pro-Islamic radical groups are trying to take over that area as well. Uh, so Russia is different, and Russia has the biggest need than ever before. And this is very simple. Russia needs young, fresh, enthusiastic, well-equipped, trained, contemporary leaders. And that's what we are trying to do. Is the church up to that task? Uh, church needs some help with it as well. So because you understand, you know, the church uh, likes to nourish some of the traditions that, uh, uh, of course, you know, uh, part of their worship service and so on. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are some difficulties, you know, but the church faithfully is building on a faithful legacy of the previous generation. So many are reaching out to the young generation. And I see there is a huge change and there is a huge potential, especially in those churches, in those communities where pastors, they focus on reaching out and training the next generation. You're doing so many good things, and we'll put the website on our firstpersoninterview.com website so people can learn more about School Without Walls and other projects that you're involved in. But I want to take a few minutes and talk about Project Hope, because here we are at the start of the holiday season. It's right around the corner now, and we have an opportunity uh, to, uh, to help with something called Project Hope. What is Project Hope, and how does it tie into the Russian church? Yeah, Project Hope, Wayne, is to bring hope to those who need hope. And, uh, of course, you know, this is a big effort, you know, this is a great partnership where uh, we're trying to 
put together into this wonderful partnership between Western churches, national churches, but this is all started by young people that we train. Once, three years ago, uh, Russian authorities, they decided to expel that wonderful project called Operation Christmas Child. Mm -hmm. And we were, uh, at that time, working with the Samaritan Spurs as one of their partners. We were distributing hundreds of thousands of those wonderful Christmas gifts that American Christians were packing and shipping to Russia. It was hard to understand why God would allow that to happen or shut down that operation. Uh, but he had a plan, didn't he? Uh, exactly. You know, we saw that as an opportunity. I remember when several of our young leaders, they come and say, listen, Sergey, this year, 160,000 orphans and needy children will not receive those Christmas gifts. We, will told, we, were, we told them that, you know, Russian government doesn't want them to have these oh, gifts. how sad. So, and they say, why don't we print those boxes. We make them those boxes available. We turn to our churches. We turn to our friends. They can provide some resources. We can buy uh, some products, you know, some gifts, you know, that mm-hmm. kids love. We will pack these boxes. And, and boxes, you're holding one of the boxes right now. And one of these boxes. It's about yeah. the size of a shoebox. Everybody size. knows what, you know, these uh, Operation Christmas Child does something very similar, of course. Yeah. But what, what goes in this box? All good things that kids love, you know, school supplies, a toy, warm socks or gloves, you know, a nice hat, some candies, some sweets, you know. So things, you know, that kids would enjoy and won't be able to afford on their own if they live in an orphanage or in a very needy, very needy family. Mm-hmm. But in addition to this, what it makes is a, a, a gift of hope. Yeah. We print a Bible children's Bible, you know. And you have one of those right in hand right now, too. It's nice, very colorful. Nicely designed, you know, with pictures and uh, uh, wonderful stories, uh, stories of Jesus. And that's what it makes this Christmas gift a gift of hope. And these young people, they took this to different churches. Churches, Russian churches, all of a sudden responded overwhelmingly, you know, with a great desire to help uh, their own orphans in their own communities. And uh, despite that, you know, Russian authorities didn't want to use that resource to help hundreds and maybe millions of uh, needy children, Russian young people, next generation leaders came up with such a wonderful idea. So, and now this Project Hope is reaching out to at least 50,000 needy children uh, in all those needy places in Russia. That's remarkable. I love this project because it does deliver hope to the children who have so little in this world. And yet uh, a simple gift can mean so much to them. But I also love this project because it's not North American Christians you know, uh, coming up with all the gifts and everything. We're simply coming up with the resources so that the Russian church can be the gift givers because they're the ones who are going to build the relationship with these children that may lead them to Christ eventually. Exactly. And this box becomes a door opener, a bridge building tool. Just think, you know, where these children will go if they have an opportunity next Sunday. If after the program they put together by young people on behalf of the local church and they, they know where to go, you know, if there is a let's say, need if they, if they build relationship with children. If you don't mind, I can share one sure. wonderful story. Yeah. And that comes from Siberia. And that comes from a near Minusinsk area uh, where used to be lots of those death camps, we would call them, where uh, people were imprisoned for years you know, under the Stalin regime and many got shot. 
And in this particular area, uh, they have a monument where 20 or 20-something 20 uh, pastors that were uh, uh, pastoring, you know, churches in, the, in, the, in that larger area were, were brought to the same, that particular place and shot to death. So they made them to uh, dig their own grave, you know, they shot them, and then uh, people didn't know uh, about this till somebody remembered. And they told that story to young people. Young people decided to come and put a monument there. And so the new church uh, got started not too far from that area. And the church planter we were supporting, he struggled so much. He says, somehow I couldn't... I couldn't, uh, couldn't, get, couldn't connect with the local... Could, couldn't connect. Yeah. You know, somehow, you know, it was not working. So, and he says, I, I had 15 people coming to services, and uh, some of them stopped coming. And then we offered him this project. And he says, what, 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 what will I do with this, with this empty boxes and with these Bibles? You know, people are tired. I'm tired. Maybe I should move back to my hometown, and I'm done. So then he says, you know what, something just, just something touched my heart. So I decided to go back to his church. They prayed, and he went to the local social office, uh, welfare office, and he asked if they know any families or any needy children in the, their area. And they looked at him and said, who are you? <laughs> Nobody ever came to ask about this. What do you want? He says, we decided as a church, and he gave this uh, sample box to us. We decided to fill these boxes with goods, you know, with uh, gifts, uh, uh, with the gifts, necessities too, and bring to those uh, children. And she says, "I will give you the names, you know, that you know you would not even imagine, you know, how poor they are." And that's mostly single moms with one or two kids have no means to actually exist, you know, and uh, to support those children. Their husbands divorced them. There were alcohol involved and all kind of things. And he says, when we packed those gifts, when we got those Bibles, they had like four or five young people in their small group. They decided to take a guitar and visit every single family, 15 families. Just think, he says, Sergey, when we first came to one young mom with two little kids, single mom, and we knocked on the door. She couldn't believe we came with, uh, you know, with uh, just to, sure. to help her. She started crying. She says, we were crying. We were unpacking those gifts for two kids. Kids were crying. <laughs> we were sharing those goods, but we were sharing the story of hope. And he says, we prayed there, and we went on to another address. Same thing happened. But he says, Sergey, you know what happened next Sunday? Those single moms with their children, they all came to our church. And the room was not able to hold all those who came. He says, that's how our store, church started growing. That's again. a great story. So, And this is how hope is distributed. Absolutely. How hope is shared. So. And church has uh, you know, the passion. They have people, volunteers. They are eager to do this. And we can come up with resources and help them to uh, print these boxes, fill them with goods, with gifts for children, print this Bible, add to this gift, and deliver it to those children. Project Hope is so needed right now as there are thousands of children in the countries of the former Soviet Union who are hungry for some love and encouragement. If you'd like to help Russian ministries equip the Russian churches to carry out Project Hope, please go online to russian-ministries.org to give your gift. That's russian-ministries.org. 
Of course, we'll also place a link on our program's website, firstpersoninterview.com. You'll be able to follow that link and give your gift to Project Hope. It's my privilege to serve on the board of Russian Ministries, and I know what it means to the Evangelical Church and the former Soviet Union when we come alongside them with this encouragement, giving them the resources to do the work of the ministry. Again, go to firstpersoninterview.com and follow the links to Russian Ministries. Well, next week, we'll meet some of the women who plan to climb Mount Kilimanjaro as part of Operation Mobilization. That's next time on First Person. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Don't miss joining us next week for First Person. First Person.